You join me in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We continue our walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Our title this morning is Grace, Faith, and Works. And our key words for our worshipers in training are faith, gift, and works. In 1994, a famous Brazilian artist named Marcio da Silva and his girlfriend, Katia de Nascimento, they ended a four-year relationship and da Silva was so distraught that he vowed to do whatever he could to win her back. And so he thought he would prove his devotion to this woman by walking to her on his knees over a nine-mile stretch from his house to hers. So he strapped car tires onto his kneecaps, and the 21-year-old man shuffled along the ground for 14 hours before he came to her home in Santos, Brazil. Now all along the way, as he passed by people, they had heard the story, they were cheering him on, they applauded his efforts, they just knew that Katia would be impressed and take him back. However, the fact is, Katia wasn't impressed. She got word of what he was doing, and before he arrived at her home, she fled so she could avoid seeing him altogether. Now, my guess is that story is not going to be made into a Netflix original movie. It doesn't have the happy ending. But this is just the way people think about their relationship to God. In fact, apart from true Christianity, this is how every religion in the world seeks to express true devotion to their God. Through sacrificial, sometimes often very painful endeavors to prove their love and their commitment ultimately to earn God's favor. For example, every year, The Sufi Muslims have a festival that commemorate the death of their founder and to show devotion to their religion where they perform bizarre acts of self-torture like putting swords through their eyeballs, piercing their cheeks, or driving skewers through their backs. In the Philippines and South American countries, every year during Lent, there are massive parades where people commit acts of self-flagellation to draw blood or they are voluntarily nailed to crosses to prove their devotion to the Lord Jesus. There are people who sleep on floors so they're not too comfortable in this world. Others will go months at a time on fasts or spend 40 days in the desert without food or contact with anyone else. Throughout the history of religion, there has never been a shortage of examples of those who are willing to do some of the most torturous things you can imagine to themselves and to others, all in an attempt to earn God's favor and to show their devotion. Now, what drives people to such practices? What gets a person to a place where they are willing to voluntarily inflict themselves with such pain and suffering? This morning, we're going to look at the greatest news in the world, which comes by way of one of the most difficult truths for us to accept. It's not that we don't understand it in theory, but it's that we are constantly forgetting how revolutionary it is, 
how diametrically opposed it is to the idea that we would need to harm ourselves or to put ourselves through torturous acts to prove or to earn something. In our text, the Apostle Paul continues to show the dramatic difference between who we were as the enemies of God and who we have become as the children of God. And he does so by showing us the difference that has been wrought in us, not because of anything that we have done, but by God's initiative as a free gift. The entirety of the Christian faith and all that we believe about who we are in Christ and how we are saved in Christ hinges upon one single word, grace. If someone asks you for one word to describe the Christian faith, this is the word, grace. Last week, we looked at Paul's teaching about sin. So this week, we turn to a fuller explanation of God's remedy for sin as Paul unfolds the riches of God's grace in the lives of the redeemed. Now, I had originally planned to get through verse 10 this morning, but that is not going to happen. We will put it off so I don't have you here all afternoon. We're going to focus then on verses 4 through 9 together this morning. You can find it on page 976 in the Blue ESV Bible. We'll begin by reading verses 4 through 7 with our first observation. We will see that Christians are united with Christ in the heavenly places. Look, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, last week we saw Paul describing all of mankind in a state of sin and rebellion, dead in trespasses and sins. Our nature, apart from Christ, is sinful. And as a result of our nature, we are not spiritually sick, we're not morally confused, we are spiritually and morally dead. We were followers of the world, followers of the flesh, followers of the devil. Our temptations all arose from those sources, and we followed after them to fulfill the desires of our hearts. But we didn't end there. We continued into verses 4 and 5 to see the remedy for sin. And that remedy was introduced by those two wonderful words in verse 4, but God. We were dead, but God made us alive. Now, one of the most painful experiences that all of us have to go through in this life is the death of someone we are close to. And when we see that person we love, when we see their body, we see that they are dead. Everything inside of us may want to speak a word to them, to raise them back up to life. We may even speak to them, but we know our words have no power. And you think of that spiritually. All of our friends, all of our family members, all of our neighbors who are without Christ, they are spiritually dead. 
and we talk to them and we, and we warn them and we want so much for them. But unless the powerful work of God is present, our words have no power to bring them to life. Now, certainly God uses his people to communicate that powerful word, but if he himself is not working, we cannot convince, we cannot cajole, we cannot manipulate, we cannot force anyone into the kingdom of God. Until God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, calls out to them and says, come forth, the spiritually dead remain dead. That's the significance of those words, but God. You were dead. Nobody else could do anything about it, but God. God could do something. And if you're in Christ, God did something. If you are a Christian, you have experienced a resurrection. In fact, so significant it is that the Bible says it is your first resurrection. Remember at the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul uses the resurrection of Christ as an illustration of the power of God. He wanted to demonstrate how powerful God is. And so he did so by pointing to the most significant event in all of human history. And we say that because without the resurrection, there is no life. It was by God's power that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that very same power is what's bringing us from death to life as well. It truly is a resurrection when we become Christians. Now, all of the time, especially here where we live in our culture in the South, we might hear the gospel a hundred times, maybe a thousand times, and it might mean nothing to us. But then all of a sudden, it's as if we're hearing it for the first time. And all of a sudden, we have this amazing, wonderful, encouraging, life-giving news. We've had people talk to us about Christ before. But all of a sudden, it actually means something to us. We've heard the dangers of sin and hell, but never felt the weight of our sin or never had the fear of hell. But all of a sudden, we are awash with guilt as we recount all of the darkness in our lives, as we, as we sense we are in danger. We need a rescue. Everything changes. Our souls spring forth from death to life. We have been resurrected. And so maybe you've talked to someone and, and their idea of what a Christian is, is basically, well, I think a Christian is somebody who tries their best to live like Jesus did and says. Maybe you think that. Maybe that's what your definition of a Christian is. It sounds humble, but if that's the case, if that's really what a Christian is, what do you do with what Paul is saying right here? We cannot ignore what he's saying. We can't just trample underfoot the real experiences of God's people throughout history that have had real, vital change of life, drastic differences between being in Christ and being out of Christ. They've really had a true experience of being dead and then being made alive. So, it's not just a matter of degree. It's not just that I was kind of rotten and I decided it's time to clean up. I'm going to look to Jesus as an example to make me a right and to uh, to make me behave better. And you know, I miss 
I mess up here and there. Nobody's perfect. But for the most part, I just try to be a good person and do what Jesus says. But that's not what Paul is saying here, is it? That's not vital Christian life. Life that is living and active, that's just modifying behavior with the same heart that's going after the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christianity is not just a matter of degree. It's not something you fall in or out of. And so Paul tells us by God's work of resurrecting us from death to life, we are united to Christ. Union with Christ. It's a vital doctrine of the Christian faith. A right understanding of union with Christ challenges every idea of what a Christian is other than what Paul is showing us here. Because union with Christ lifts us up above the world to a state of elevation enjoyed by only those who are Christians. This is what Paul is writing in verse 6. We are raised up. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are seated with Christ as a result of our union with Christ. So you see, not only are we now no longer dead, and not only are we now alive, but we are actually sitting in the place of authority. And notice what tense that's written in. I know some of you think grammar is boring. You don't pay much attention to it. I read your Facebook posts, I know. But it is really important here. Look at the tense at the end of verse 5 and all of verse 6. You have been saved. You have been raised up. You have been seated with. What, what tense is that? It is all in the past. It's something that is done. It is something that is complete. It is something that is final. And so Paul's not saying these things to remind believers of something that's going to happen and that we should look forward to. No, he's saying, hey, listen, you're in vital union together with Christ, and so this is your present position. He wants us to know what God has done, and he wants us to know what God is doing right now. Why? Because life is really, really difficult sometimes. And life is really, really painful. And sometimes life is really confusing and messy. And so Paul wants to say, by the way, in the midst of all of that, know this one thing. You are already in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, remember what he said back in chapter 1. All of the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are already yours. And so we have to see There is an objective side to my salvation. I am, by virtue of Christ's work on my behalf and the Holy Spirit working within me, I am saved. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's objective. But thank God there's also a subjective element to my salvation as well. The Bible is always emphasizing the experiential aspect of our salvation as well what we're enjoying here and now, because not only am I in Christ, but Christ is in me. So let me try to clarify this this for us. What, What God has done to us spiritually 
is comparable to what God did with the Lord Jesus Christ physically when he raised him from the dead and took him to himself and seated him in the heavenly places. Remember the end of chapter one, it's all about God's power. And now Paul is saying, don't forget that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power working in you now spiritually. And it it has all happened in the past. It is completed and it's all once and for all. It's already done. So we must say of ourselves as Christian people that we have been raised. We have been seated in the heavenly places. And so Paul has this contrast going on. The Christian is completely different from the non-Christian. The non-Christian is dead and following after the world and the flesh and the devil. And the Christian is alive. The Christian is quickened. The Christian is raised. The Christian is seated in the heavenly places and enjoying all of the blessings of the spiritual place. It's a completely different standing than the non-Christian, entirely different in every way. And now, as we become Christians and are united to Christ, it is important to recognize that we are what we are by virtue of who Christ is and what Christ is. He is what we call our federal head. He is the one who represents us before the Father. So you are declared righteous if you are in Christ. Now, you are not actually righteous. You still have your heart and lots of lots of faults and lots of flaws, all kinds of ravenous desires and anger, all sorts of selfishness and pride. Yet, God looks at you and what does he see? Think about it. When you consider Jesus himself saying to the Father, Father, I know that taking this cross and dying on this cross is going to be the worst thing the world will ever know. I don't desire this. However, not my will, but yours be done. Think about him saying that. Does, are we amazed by Jesus' devotion and loyalty to fulfilling what he agreed to fulfill with the Father? It should take our breath away. The kind of perfection and righteousness and godliness displayed in the life of Christ. And so when God looks at you, that is what he sees. Why? Because he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, legally... Christ became liable for your sins. And it all fell on him. Why? Because you are united to Christ. And if Christ is your federal head, your representative, all of his righteousness, everything he has done, everything he deserves is now placed into your account. We call that imputation. I'm giving you a lot of words today. But that means that it is given, it is credited to you. Your sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to you. It is the great exchange. My sin for his righteousness. So all of that holiness, all of that godliness, all of that righteousness, it's credited to you. And so I can be raised with Christ. I can be seated with Christ 
because everything that happened to him has happened to me. Whatever is true of him is true of you because you are united with him. And if you've never thought about that before, if this comes, and this has never come to you as being absolutely amazing, I think that maybe you haven't understood it. Maybe you thought being a Christian really did just mean, hey, I thought I just needed to ask God for forgiveness and try my best to live a good life. But this is light years ahead of that kind of thinking, isn't it? It means to become a Christian is to be brought into an entirely different realm than I've ever known. And I meet with a lot of Christian people who don't understand the significance of their union with Christ. And so they have a sense that they're supposed to always feel guilty about life. Do you feel that way? Or you feel like maybe you're supposed to um, always have a sense of you deserving to die. Or you feel like you only deserve to be unhappy. You know, uh, there's people, and maybe some of you, you feel like if you, if you leave church on Sunday, you haven't really gone to church unless you feel completely beaten up and bloodied by what's been preached. You feel beat down and broken, and you're wallowing in your sin. I've just been reminded of how terrible and sinful I am. But people think that way because they don't understand their union with Christ. Why do I say that? Because the central statement in this text as to why God is doing all he is doing with his people is right here in verse 7. He brought you from death to life and united you with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul doesn't say, by grace you've been saved so that you can be reminded how terrible you were, how undeserving you were, so that you can feel terrible about all the times you sin and beat yourself up and flog yourself and crawl on your knees for nine miles to make it right. No, you've been raised with Christ. You've been seated with Christ. You are actually there. You are legally there. You are seated with him there. And so that means God already holds you as acceptable and he has clothed you with the righteousness of his son. And why? So that the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus can be on display. And notice again, verse seven, what is the tense here? That is future tense. So God's purpose for raising us up and seating us in the heavenly places already is that he would be praised for these things for all eternity. How so? Because we are where and who we are as trophies of God's grace. What's God's evidence of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus? You and I. Do you want to know for sure that God is gracious? Just look at me. I'm a Christian. <laughs> Listen, we together, we don't even want 5% of our thoughts on any particular day of the week displayed on that screen for everyone else to read. Because we know what we think and we know how we think. 
And so you don't have to look any further than your very own heart and your very own life to say, you want proof that God is really, really, really gracious? Here it is. I am a Christian. And all of this in the seen and unseen world of all that God has created will forever look and say, yeah, those people of God, they were a pretty sorry lot, but then God saved them. And we will be living as a laser light show of God's grace for all of eternity. All of heaven and earth will look and say, look at the incomparable riches of God's grace. Just look at these people. God wants the entire universe to sing about his grace for all eternity, to never get over it. And he is going to do that through us. In other words, the purpose of everything he has given you is so the whole world, the whole universe, all that has ever been created might understand That God is gracious. Christianity is all about God's grace. The purpose of history is all to point to God's grace. Everything he is doing now is to show forth the riches of his grace. So all we can do at this point, if we're going to understand the purpose of the universe and understand what God wants for you today more than anything else, is that you understand the incomparable riches of his grace. You, brother and sister in Christ, have been given new life in Christ. You are united to Christ. You are with Christ in the heavenly places, all to display the glorious grace of God towards you now and throughout all eternity. Now, knowing what all of this means... And in light of what we've already seen in the book of Ephesians, we need to be reminded of our second observation this morning in verses 8 and 9. If you are a Christian, it is not because of you. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. A recent Gallup poll found that 82% of non-Christian Americans believe the statement, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. And those are non-Christians, so we shouldn't expect otherwise. They don't read their Bibles, they don't understand grace, so that sort of makes sense to them. You do your part and God will do his. So that's not so shocking, but here's the bad part of the survey. 81%, that's 1% less than the non-Christians, of those who claim to be Christians, also believe the quote, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. That does not speak well of our understanding of the gospel. And maybe you're thinking, well, it may not be in the Bible, but really, what's wrong with that statement? Isn't it true? Well, it's actually the exact opposite of the gospel. It's a complete and total misunderstanding of what grace actually is. A lot of people think about grace and love synonymously. They, they mean the same thing. But you can show love and receive love without grace being involved. We're not saved by love. We're saved by grace through faith. There's a big difference. 
Love as an action is someone doing good to us or for us. If you love me, you're going to show me that love in the way you treat me, in the way you serve me, in the way you talk about me. But you see, grace goes well beyond that. Grace says, there's nothing about you that deserves this good. And in fact, you deserve the opposite of that. But I'm going to do it anyway. Grace is love shown to someone who deserves the opposite of what you're giving them. It's not an experience of love that transforms you. It's the experience of grace. Now let's take this a step further because we need to get this. Grace is not just that I show you love that you don't deserve. It's that when you are shown love that you don't deserve, you actually deserve the exact opposite of everything I'm doing. So you might come to me and say, hey, I need $250. I'm wanting to buy a new driver because I keep slicing the ball. And every golfer knows the problem is always with the arrow and not the Indian. So, of course, I'm very sympathetic to this cause. I understand. I've been there. I've been through a few drivers. I'm not under any obligation whatsoever to give that to you. And yet I give it to you. You'll be delighted. You will be thankful. But that's not grace. That may be love, but that's not grace. Grace means not only showing love and doing good to someone who you don't owe it to, but it's someone who owes you the opposite of that. So I could say $250, you owe me $1,000, and now you're asking for $250? No, in fact, I'm not giving you anything. I'm going to sue you to get my money back. But grace is to say you owe the opposite. You deserve the opposite, but you know what? I'm going in on this. And I'm not bringing up any of that other. In fact, that's cast away and it, it is to be remembered no more. Grace is for you to give tenderness to someone who deserves toughness. To give an open hand to someone who deserves a fist. Grace is doing to someone who deserves the opposite. And as a result... Grace is always, always, always very expensive to the giver. And it ought to always shock the receiver. Many of you are familiar. Victor Hugo wrote the book Les Miserables. And in the story, there's a man named Jean Valjean. Now, Jean Valjean was a man who was originally put into prison because of an injustice, but eventually he becomes an actual criminal because he is so embittered in his heart by the abuse he gets, by all the bias and opposition, by all the bigotry and the injustice in life. So he develops into, his, into a criminal himself, and his attitude is, everybody else has abused me and has hurt me and misused me, so I'll hurt and misuse you. Well, Jean Valjean is released from prison, and as an ex-convict, he's taken in by a bishop. And the bishop brings him into his home, and out of the goodness of his heart, when the, the, the bishop is providing all that he has, what's yours is mine, but when his back is turned, Jean Valjean steals the silver cutlery from the bishop's dining room table, and he runs out through the garden. 
Now, eventually, the police catch him on something else, and they find this beggarly-looking man with all this extremely valuable silver. And they immediately know it belongs to the bishop. And they bring him back to him. And all it would take is one word, and Valjean would be back in prison. But instead, the bishop looks at the situation. He looks at Valjean, and he says, Well, of course I gave him the silver. But my dear friend, I also gave you the candlesticks. Why didn't you take those as well? Here, they're yours. And then he looks at him and he says, now go in peace and I want you to know you're always welcome here. This was the bishop doing good to someone who deserved exactly the opposite. This is grace. It's not that he just doesn't owe Jean Valjean, but he owes him a punishment. And instead, he gives him grace. And as a result, number one, it's very expensive to the giver, right? Look at what he lost. But number two, it's completely shocking and it's completely unpredictable. Here's the thing that you may not understand. Here's the thing I want to drive home for all of us. Grace is always humbling. That's the reason why Paul says here, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. If you've received the grace of God, it has humbled you to the dust. It's radically changed your life if you're in Christ. And a person who has really understood that God has not just given you love, but love that you have completely been undeserving of at an incredible cost to himself. For you to receive grace means you will have a completely different life. Not just cleaned up, not just a better version of who you were before, but a completely new life as a new creation. Grace is shocking to us because we just have this really hard time accepting the fact that we're receiving something we didn't earn. We're receiving something we didn't deserve. We're receiving something that is the exact opposite of what we should receive. And that's why it's so tempting for us to think, well, I must have to sleep on a bed of nails or walk on hot coals or whip myself or take a vow of poverty or live in silence. I have to be able to prove that I actually do not deserve this. I have to show that in the end I'll be worth it. And Paul says in verse 9, that's not how this works. If you're a Christian, it's not because of you. If it was because of you, you would have something to boast about. But it's not because of you. So the only thing that it can do is stop your mouth. You have nothing to say about yourself and what you have done. And this is something that is so offensive to many people about the gospel. To come to a place where we receive God's gift of grace, we have to be able to say, I need that. I need something I don't deserve, which is the exact opposite of something I do deserve. And so people run from this because we are filled with pride and self-righteousness. And, and we think we should be thought of a bit more highly than grace allows. It strikes a blow to our self-exaltation. And so for many people, their real objection to the gospel is 
grace itself. If you think it's beneath you to admit you're so sinful that only the Son of God's death could save you, if you think that's demeaning, if you think that's primitive, if you think anything along those lines, Paul says, sorry, buddy, salvation is all of grace. Salvation is not because of you. It's a gift from God, not because of anything you've done, solely and completely by grace alone so that you have nothing to say. You've contributed nothing. And by the way, it costs God the Father, his son, that he might give it to you. So spare yourself crawling on your knees. Stop whipping and flogging yourself. Stop always thinking you have to walk away from everything with the weight of the world on your shoulders because it's not yours to bear. The Lord has bore it for you. And now when grace rocks our world, we are made new creations. And we have this profound understanding of where we stand with Christ in humility It's the place where we come face to face with the reality that we've been given everything as a result. And nothing is from us. Why has God given you new life? Why has God given you new freedom? Why has God given you a new status and a new record? It is all in order that in the ages to come you might be trophies to show forth the incomparable riches of his grace. Can you live in accordance with that? As a result of that, can we live realizing that that is God's highest goal for us? He wants me to live in such a way that people look at me. He wants you to live in such a way that people look at you and say, there is no explanation for this person's life and demeanor and character and quality other than that person has a great God, a God of glory and a God of grace. That's it. And if you're a Christian, I want for you that thing more than anything else today. I want for people to be able to look at you and say, I cannot explain the humility. I cannot explain the boldness. I cannot explain the gentleness and yet the conviction. I cannot explain the moral beauty. I can't explain this person's life other than this person must have a great, glorious, and gracious God. And God wants you to be a glorious display piece of his grace for all eternity. That's a great thing. And he calls us now to live in accordance with that and gives us the ability to do so. Live in light of that. Live with gratitude that that is what he has appointed for you and for me. If you're not a Christian, the grace of God is not cut off from you to receive. God calls on you to admit who you are, to admit to him that you know you deserve the exact opposite of what he's offering and that you need Christ if you have any hope for life. And when you are in Christ, you are raised up, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places in perfect, unending union. I commend Christ to you. He is our only hope. Stop trying to earn something. Stop trying to prove something. Stop trying to be something. Repent and believe in Christ. By grace, through faith, life can be yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
the incredibly refreshing reminder that we are not who we are in Christ because of anything that we have or that we've done, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done on our behalf. And we give you thanks that we, as your people, are united to Christ, that you didn't simply save us and leave us still to ourselves, but you've united us to Christ and given us all that is his here and in the heavenly places, that we are seated with him, And that we can receive all of the spiritual blessings. And that we can live in those in light of your grace. As trophies of your grace to show forth your glory and your grace. And so we pray, Father, as your people. That you would help us to live in light of the truth of your word. That you have been gracious to us. That is a transforming reality. And we pray that we are truly transformed as we are in union with Christ. For those who are not in Christ, I pray, oh God, that their longing, their desire would be for this grace. That they would come to the end of themselves and stop trying to live. That they might earn your favor Because your standard of perfection is impossible for us to meet. It is only in Christ that we find the fullness of all that you have required fulfilled. May they delight in him at the end of themselves, trusting that Christ is all we need. Christ is all and in all. And we can rest in him, no longer laboring and toiling to be accepted but resting fully, finally, and completely in your grace alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.